Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books Network Environmental Studies. I'm Sean Munger. I'm a host on this channel. And today I'm going to be talking to uh, Peter Cup, and he is the author of Hoptopia, A World of Agriculture and Beer in Oregon's Willamette Valley from University of California Press. Uh, I'm Sean Munger. I'm an author, teacher, historian, and podcaster. I have my own podcast called Second Decade, which is on the uh, his, uh, Recorded History Podcast Network, and you can find it on iTunes. But uh, we're going to go ahead and talk to Peter Cup about a really fascinating subject, the history of hops and beer in Oregon's Willamette Valley. Hello, this is Sean Munger, uh, host on New Books Network, and uh, I've got Peter Cup here with us, and he is the author of Hoptopia, A World of Agriculture and Beer in Oregon's Willamette Valley. Hello, Peter. Hi, Sean. Thanks for having me. Sure. Thank you very much for, for coming on. Uh, great book. Really enjoyed it. I'm sure the uh, the readers are, are going to like it. It's kind of an, an interesting environmental history that um, I think a lot of people don't know. So uh, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, kind of who you are and uh, what areas you work in and what you'd like people to know about you? Sure. I'm currently associate professor at New Mexico State University, and I'm the director of the public history program. Um, I was raised in Portland, Oregon, and I went to a great undergraduate uh, program at Pacific University where I fell in love with environmental history and then got a job working for the Oregon Historical Society and a master's degree and solidified my interest in environmental and public history. Got a PhD at the University of Nevada with a focus on agricultural history, um, which people think is a dying field, but is quite vibrant right now. Well, I think uh, with uh, particularly the bio of... um your connection to Portland, it shouldn't be any surprise why you eventually fell into writing about beer and the history of beer. Um, but uh, why don't you tell us about how you got interested in in the subject? The, the book is is about the history of hops. Is that how you would you would describe it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and what, what brought you to that uh, to that subject? Yeah. So the funny thing is, the book should have been about the 1915 Panama Pacific World Fair. In San Francisco, because that's what my that's what my advisor wanted me to write when I was a doctorate student. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> that's one, really interesting. But one, but, and I think he's still upset that I didn't pursue that project. But in any case, it started like many other book projects as a dissertation. And um, in the summer of two thousand eight, my father and I, uh, I was living in, in Reno, Nevada, and I was visiting my folks who had just moved to Aurora, Oregon. Uh, from Portland, which is a small town near Salem uh, in the Willamette Valley. And my dad and I were driving around and all of a sudden I see these these hops growing up 20-foot trellises. I'd never seen them uh, in the wild, as I like to say. And uh, I was intrigued and I did a little bit of research and I found out that the Pacific Northwest produced a, a third of the world's hops. Hmm which of course are an essential ingredient in beer along with uh, water and, and malt and yeast. And, and nobody had written this history. And I said, well, there's certainly, there's something bigger. Uh, there might be something bigger to this story. And I found out way back then that the Willamette Valley in Oregon, which stretches from Portland to um, about Eugene, um, in the first half of the 20th century, it claimed to be the hop center of the world. And so the project was born kind of on a, on a whim, on a drive, on a country road uh, with my dad almost 10 years ago. And that turned into a doctoral dissertation. And then I traveled um, to Europe to do some more of the, the background research. And it came together, lo and behold. 
Yeah, that, that's interesting, kind of the life cycle of history projects and dissertations. My, my own dissertation, which is about uh, the uh, um, climate change in the early 19th century, began with an article I remember reading in the sixth grade. So <laughs> interesting how these things how these things happen. So what did you discover about the history of hops and, and beer making in the Willamette Valley that you didn't know? Well, a lot, really. Um it cemented my desire to be an agricultural historian because it touched on um, so many a- aspects of the past from um, labor and particularly the diversity of labor that harvested hops, um, the scientific research programs at Oregon State University um, and uh, or, or Oregon State, uh, Oregon Agricultural College, as it was called um, prior to the 60s. Um, labor, science, there's an economic history, obviously. A lot of these small farmers were looking for, you know, after the railroads came in the late 19th century, the small farmers were looking for cash crops to integrate into the, um, uh, better integrate and, and, and accumulate wealth. And so a lot of these farmers just gave up on dairy or, um, wheat and they turned towards crops that would make more money and hops became that crop from about the 1890s to the 1940s so so this this small specialty crop affected um life in the willamette valley for a long time and because of the success of hop growing in the willamette valley the the usda the department of agriculture pumped in a lot of money as did big brewers after, um, after prohibition ended. Uh, and so the Willamette Valley and the Pacific Northwest more broadly became a center of hop agriculture research innovation, um, with all those stories of labor and economy and science, um, going along with it. So, um, I was talking with uh, Bill Robbins, do you know, Bill Robbins, uh, emeritus at Oregon state? i I believe I've met him. Yes. <clears throat> Bill, Bill just wrote a book about, uh, he just wrote a history of Oregon State University where I did a lot of my research. And I, I said early on in his project, you're going to write about hops at all? He's like, well, why would I write about hops? <laughs> and so, uh, and it, so it's a story that, you know, seems like kind of a side story, but it's actually quite central to life in the Willamette Valley and the global beer economy, right? These hops weren't just uh, used by brewers in the Northwest, but across the Pacific, uh, in Alaska, East Asia, you know, uh, and ultimately uh, Europe, particularly um, England in the early 20th century. So this, so this small specialty crop touches um, uh, local history and, and global history as well. And the more, the more research I did, the more the story grew and, um, it's a fun project, you know. Sure, I I was very interested in in uh, that sort of transition because at the beginning of the book you talk about how England was really kind of the 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 place where hops were were grown, and then how did the Willamette Valley really displace England as the uh, as the world leader in that? Yeah, so this is kind of the uh, like a lot of these. Uh, commodity histories, great commodity histories like Sterling Evans' Bound and Twine or um, John Solari's um, uh, book on bananas. Um, there are, there, you have to dig into the global and transnational history. And so what happened in this story is that hop agriculture emerges in Europe around a thousand years ago and starts spreading. Um, and by the uh, 1700s and 1800s, England is one is one of the England and Germany are um, two of the world leading uh, hop producers. But um, during the colonial era, era English uh, brewers wanted English hops, so they started growing them in, in North America. And and essentially, what happened is a pattern of American agriculturalists um, borrowing. Uh, everything from agricultural methods to uh, ways to attract labor during harvest from England, and so I call it a, a trans a transplanted landscape of, of of labor, which is that the model developed in England and then was transplanted to New England, New York, Wisconsin, and in the Upper Midwest, and then ultimately uh, the virgin soils of the Pacific Northwest that could that produced more hops per acre um, 
in this in this wonderful climate um, than most anywhere else in the world. But that also had to do with the virgin soils, and then in England at the same time, um, there's there's an, you know more diseases and pests, and so um, the Pacific Northwest supplants England as as the world's largest producer by the by the turn of the 20th century, essentially. I don't know if that all made sense. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's just fascinating how, you know, Lemon Valley is not that big. And, and uh, especially if you think of the medieval, you know, beer going back through the medieval history and ancient history and such a, a place that's been settled for such a short time comparative to all that has really become the world leader is, is just a, extraordinary. Really. And of, and of course, in the Willamette Valley, of course, it's, um, it's what we call a windward marine climate. So it's affected by the, uh, ocean currents and winds. And there's lots of natural precipitation, obviously in the Willamette Valley. You, you, you live in Eugene, right? Or Portland? Uh, yeah, I live in the Portland area. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, you have two seasons, you have a wet season and a dry season, but that was perfect for hop agriculture. Um, until about the 1930s and 40s when there's uh, a disease introduced called downy mildew. And as you can imagine, a mildew disease does not like all the wetness. <laughs> so that's when Yakima Valley and Washington State, which is on the other side of the Cascades, um, which is an arid climate, and they used um, uh, they used irrigated agriculture, and it helped stave off this disease that, that ravaged hop agriculture and across the world. Yeah, I, I was interested in that uh, the downy mildew. I thought that was really fascinating that uh, it, it had such a huge effect on the industry and and really kind of the whole history of this of this commodity. Just kind of amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, in some ways, I see downy mildew, this plant disease, as one of the um, main characters in, in the book. Because what happens? I mean, if you take a step back for a second, uh, what this book really asks is why do the beers of the craft beer revolution smell and taste the way they do? And, and I, and I answer that through my book and the answer comes back to the fact that Oregon and Pacific coast hop growers faced this disease down in mildew beginning in 1930 and they had to come up with new solutions. And so they started at Oregon state, they started uh, in Corvallis, they started um, crossbreeding new hop varieties and uh, in ch in the in chapter nine of my book, I spent a lot of time. It's just a, it's a scientific history of why we why we have these new hops. But essentially, downy mildew uh, destroyed the varieties they were growing. Uh, one called Cluster, another called Fuggle, um, which which are um, the the main hops grown for for a long time back into the nineteenth century, at least. But the program at Oregon State started producing these new hop hybrids, and those hop hybrids like Cascade and Willamette, those are the hops that the craft beer crowd picks up on during uh, the 1970s and 1980s. So if you have a – let's see, what's one of the most popular um, – uh, for example, one of the most popular craft beers is Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, and this was, this was mm -hmm. developed in, in Chico in the early 1980s, and they used the Cascade hop which was the first hop released from Oregon State University, but had downing mildew, uh, a term that some hop growers today still don't, they refuse to utter those words. <laughs> had downing mildew not arrived to the Pacific Northwest, we wouldn't have had all these new hybrid hop varieties. So it's just one of these interesting um, turns of events, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's so fascinating how these things work. Uh, you mentioned labor a couple of times. I found that an interesting thread uh, throughout the book, especially when you were talking about the social composition of the labor force that picked hops in the early uh, 20th century. Um, how how did you come upon that story? And, and uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, hops hops are unique, first, first of all, because they grow up on these high trellises. And they produce hop cones from from top to bottom, essentially. And so, if you if you think you ha you're picking uh, zucchini or green beans or something, you, you know, you can hand pick them right there. And, and there's not that much per acre. 
compared to hops. Hops required small armies of people to hand pick uh, those high trellises. And so what happened is in the in the late 19th century, as this is hop growing in the Northwest begins just after the Civil War, um, there was a there was a scarcity of labor to do to pick all these hop cones um, come late August and September, and so the growers would turn to any labor source available, and the most famous grower, a guy named Ezra Meeker out of Puyallup, Washington, he started employing um, American Indian groups from across the Pacific Northwest, up through, uh, from British Columbia, f- even from Alaska, from Oregon and from Washington, because he wanted to, um, he, he created a new labor system for, or he recognized that American Indians were transitioning to, to a more, uh, to the more cash economy. And, and this would provide them, uh, with the resources they, they would need throughout the year. So, as a, so it benefited uh, both these groups. But over time, as hop growing um, expanded, Meeker and others, they would hire any labor available. And so um, what this does in, in the book is it demonstrates that, one, the American West was sparsely populated in the late 19th and early 20th century. But number two, it was extremely diverse. And if you go through all the newspaper records or if you go through the Meeker papers, you realize that all the gro- the growers are hiring and recruiting for American Indian, Chinese, Japanese, um, middle class, lower class, um, families, uh, urban families, um, rural families, other hop growers. And, and so um, just to fast forward a little bit, after Prohibition in, 19, in the mid-1930s, the Oregon hop industry required about 70,000 workers per season, which was a tenth of the state's population. And so you just think about everybody that that had their hands on those hops producing from for the global economy. And there's a really rich uh, story of labor and diversity um, that, that I pick up in uh, – in several chapters of the book. Yeah, I, just, I found that just really fascinating and uh, kind of how the sort of labor or, or that immense labor force became just sort of a cross current of sort of cultural um, communication, really. I mean, the, the, the forces were much more diverse than you would have expected at that time. Absolutely. But also there are, you know, um, the stories are also alarming uh, to the to the amount of nativism and racism that existed too. Um, the camps were segregated, uh, so American Indian uh, pickers were segregated from white pickers, were segregated from Chinese um, pickers, hop pickers. Um, and if you go through the newspapers, the growers are advertising blatantly, they basically say, we want white families to come pick our hops. Now, not, not every farmer was saying that, but it was. It, it occurs often enough that it, it's a trend, that ideally what the growers wanted was a white workforce. Um, but that really didn't happen until about the 1920s and 1930s. So, so as much as it's about diversity, there's also the reminder of the, a history of intolerance in the region. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, the the downy mildew as as being kind of one of the characters, the main characters of the book. Who would you say are some of the other main characters that uh, kind of weave their way through the story? Oh, I like that question. Well, I wanted the hop to be the main character, just the idea of a hop being being a main character. And so that's why early chapters, they don't even start in Oregon. They start in, they start millions of years ago with the story of the evolution of this plant. Um, right. Humulus lupulus L and how it spread from Asia to across uh, temperate climates across uh, uh, Asia, Europe, and North America. So the hop, first and foremost, um, the, the other main characters really pick up with Ezra Meeker, who plants hops after um, after the Civil War in Puyallup, and he becomes the um, he becomes actually the nation's leader in hop growing. He's he's going to go to world's fairs and judge hops. He publishes a guide in 1883 for other American farmers to grow hops uh, of of high quality. Um, 
another another scholar just wrote a book on Meeker called Hop Hop King Hop King, um, and uh, it's a story of Ezra Meeker's hop years, and so Ezra Meeker um, became one of the Pacific Northwest's first millionaires just because of his ability a to sell hops, but then also to um, work with other farmers to contract their hops for the global marketplace too. And he becomes instrumental from, I mean, if you look at his records, he's, he's dealing in hops with everybody from Henry Weinhard uh, brewery in, in Portland to, um, to uh, brewers and across England uh, and, and Europe. After Meeker, what, ha- what happens is uh, there's a global, because of, uh, weather conditions in the early 1880s, there's a global hop shortage and the Pacific Northwest is kind of the last player standing. And so they, so Meeker writes his book in 1883, right after that happened. So everybody gets excited about growing hops because they're making lots of money. Uh, Ultimately though, during the, uh, the depression of the 1890s, Meeker had extended a lot of loans to small farmers to help them uh, develop hop yards and because of the depression in the 1890s, pe- people stopped paying him back. And so his, his reign as Hop King ended by the late 1890s, and he heads up north to, in search of gold in um, Alaska and Yukon, uh, which is an interesting end to his story. Mm-hmm. But, but other players um, uh, fill in his role, uh, a guy named Horst, who... Um, originally started in New York and then California ends up kind of uh, taking Meeker's place in the Northwest. And he does all kinds of similar um, uh, activity. Uh, Perhaps what the most famous thing he did though, is in the first decade of the 20th century, uh, like Meeker before him, he contracted all of the Willamette Valley's hop growers and they signed an exclusive contract with Guinness Brewing, which of course is, the most famous brewery in Ireland. So here by the first decade of the 20th century, the most famous, uh, this famous beer is using Willamette Valley hops. And so mm. these are the, these are the kind of stories that, uh, uh, I don't know, kind of pop and, and, and make it really interesting. So there's several of those characters that, that pass through. Um, but ultimately this, the story ends up with, uh, the hop, um, research program at Oregon state university and I had an opportunity throughout my research to get to know a really incredible scientist, a geneticist, a plant geneticist named um, Alfred Honnold, Al Honnold, who was born in Austria, um, actually born in Austria the same year that Downy Mildew broke out in the Pacific Northwest, which I think is funny. But he, he goes to school in Austria. He goes to school at the University of Nebraska. He studies wheat and corn genetics. And ultimately, he gets a job at Oregon State University in the mid-1960s, and he takes the the reins of the hop breeding program and he becomes the most successful hop breeder. So Al uh, is still around. He's a good buddy of mine and he kind of carries the last couple chapters because it's his work and he and his colleagues work that, that uh, um, led to the hop varieties that we that we're familiar with um, in the craft beer revolution. So those are some of the key players. That I was really interested toward the end of the story um, about how the science really did get become front and center, and I thought that was so interesting. How it's like sort of the focus of the book changes, where I mean, originally we're in these you know big fields, and then we're kind of in these like labor camps, you know, that where the where the growers are, and then we're in the the boardrooms and the conventions of the of the hop growers and then finally we end up in a laboratory in uh, in Corvallis um, and I think that's just such a fascinating progression also uh, you mentioned agricultural history too earlier right I would imagine that not being an agricultural historian I would imagine that if you're studying the 20th century in agriculture probably one of your main uh, focuses is going to be sort of how science and big business and and you know government funding really sort of uh, um, changes agriculture in in a very profound way. Yeah, absolutely. So the 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 hop story in the Pacific Northwest is is interesting because it reflects 
major trends in American agriculture in terms of um, modernization and, and research and mechanization. But it defies that it defies a lot of those trends too, because it's a small specialty crop. It's not corn. It's not cotton. It's not wheat. And so, um, what happens is that hop, the hop industry doesn't receive a ton of money from the USDA. In fact, until I think until about the seventies and eighties, it was really. Um, it was really the the Anheuser Bushes and the and the Millers of the world who were working with closely with the hop growers and with the scientists at Oregon State University or at Oregon Agricultural College at the time. Um, and so, you know, if you have a field of wheat in the 1910s and 20s, you're going to transition to using you know motorized tractors uh, and so on and so forth. But in a hop field, there's nothing that quite works like that. And so, uh, because, because you're in a more confined space, if that makes sense. And so even when you look at harvesting, right, there's all kinds of combines and harvesters. There's nothing like that, uh, uh, on a mass scale for hops because they're such a small crop until, until during the world war II period and later. So that lags a little bit. Now that said, there's a lot of similarities. Um, for example, uh, in terms of, uh, what we call the chemical parade after World War II, the, the appropriation of wartime chemicals to to combat pests in American agriculture. That certainly happens uh, in the hop fields. Um, uh, but once again, part of, part of the story is that the breeding program at Oregon State University was breeding in part to, to reduce um, – chemicals. They wanted to cr create disease and pest resistant hops. Does that make sense? So there, there so it kind of, there's a little back and forth on it. It's, it's not as neat and tidy as the story of the, uh, the major agricultural crops uh, in North America. Yeah. That, that is so interesting that it is, I mean, hops are really kind of a different character, I think, than, than some of the big crops that, uh, that can build the economy in the, in the mid 20th century. I just find that, that really fascinating. Uh, one of the stories that just amazed me about this was prohibition, um, and I was surprised, and perhaps you were too, when you discovered it that the hops industry in the Lamet Valley actually expanded during prohibition. How did that work? Yeah, so this is I, I proudly call Chapter Six the surprise of prohibition. Um, the, the surprise of prohibition is yes. You would think that without a domestic uh, beer market, that American hop growers would be in dire straits. But what we have to remember is just prior to um, Prohibition, which is uh, goes into effect in January of 1920, we have World War I, the Great War, and European agriculture is ravaged during that period. So it, it provides another opportunity for Oregon uh, and, and Pacific Coast hop growers to um, take advantage of, of the market situation. So, so if you look at the um, agricultural census, almost every year during the 1920s, farmers in Oregon are expanding their acreage. Um, so the surprise of prohibition is Oregon not only cements itself as the um, hop center of the world, but it, but it actually expands and um, takes over um, Germany. That's just that's just amazing that it uh, that it happened that it happened like that because uh, yeah you would think that uh, I mean prohibition had so many interesting sort of ripple effects on a number of different industries uh, all over America um, and actually prohibition came uh, as as I recall, recall prohibition came earlier in Oregon than it did at the national level yeah it did they um, it was. Um, a ballot initiative. Uh, I think it was passed in 1914. It wasn't um, enacted until 1916, however, in Oregon. But if you look at the record, if you look through the newspapers and you look through some of the records of growers, it's, a, it's a, you know, um, these hop growers had spent decades trying to become the hop center of the world. And here, um, prohibition threatened to take it all away. And the irony, unfortunately, is that a lot of the hop growers, um, Pull, a lot of the farmers pulled out their hops beginning in the mid 
teens, so right around you know during World War One, because uh, they couldn't see they couldn't foresee the future that in the twenties, you know, uh, hop agriculture was going to expand again. So, um, yeah, like you were saying earlier, it's just a lot of unexpected um, consequences, and it's not a straightforward story. Uh, another f- feature that I, th- I thought really interested me, and, and you you mentioned it earlier about kind of the big beer uh, manufacturers. We're talking, you know, World War II and afterwards. That that was kind of a almost a downtime for for hops, uh, just because I mean, I mean, you know, we're familiar with those. At least Americans are familiar with those kinds of beers, and they're not very hoppy. Uh, so how did that change or how did that affect the industry? And then, and then how did that change? Yeah. So after prohibition, um, people were hesitant to, to have reintroduced strong beers quickly to, to the country. And, re- and remember there's a generation now that's been in Oregon, you know, prohibition in 1916. And so p- there's not commercial, um, beer really. I mean, there is to some degree. Um, but, not in terms of mass consumption. Um, so after prohibition, they keep beer pretty light at like 3.5% or 3%. Uh, and what that means is there's less malt in it. So so if you have less malt, which is the sweet part of beer, then you need less hops, which is the um, bitter part of beer. And so American hop growers are terrified in the 1930s and 40s, because the big breweries, Anheuser-Busch, Miller, um, Schlitz, Schmitz, uh, Henry Weinhardt's, you know, Olympia, Rainier, all these ones that we're familiar with in the Northwest too, um, the, the hop growers are terrified and, and they meet with representatives of that industry and say, hey, you, you need to use more hops. People around the world are using a lot more hops. German brewers use a lot more hops than, than you all do. Uh, but the, it was... It was an interesting time because those big breweries had to rebrand themselves. They had, they you know, they created six packs for the first time. Beer consumption transferred from beer gardens uh, and, and pubs to the to the household, uh, and so you had to make a product that was seen as safe for for everyday consumption in the household. Does that make sense? Yeah, I I, I think so. Uh... But what happened is the popularity of beer expands during the 1950s and 1960s. So even though the brewers are not using as much uh, as many ounces of hops in each vat, they're using more hops because the beer industry expands in the 1950s. That, that's such an interesting story, um, and particularly being uh, from the from the Northwest, where you know Portland, of course. I mean, it's almost a cliche where you know the 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 young uh, male hipster in in you know standing on Northwest Twenty Third Street with a pint of Widmer in his hand. Uh, you know, that's almost a, <laughs> that was me. <laughs> well, me too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's almost a cultural uh, a cultural icon. Um, and the end of your book kind of gets into that. I, I noticed there's several pictures of of you know the the 1980s brewers who are these you know invariably these you know bearded men in flannel you know standing in front of a tank somewhere. Uh, uh, what, what about that part of the story? How did that really? How did that come about? I mean, the the the, the quick way to describe this is that during the '60s and '70s, people were rejecting what we call the bland 1950s Campbell soup. You know, um, lack of flavor 1950s and 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 Budweiser, right, or or Miller High Life, and people. People wanted more, and it mm-hmm. starts. We see it in California wine industry. People are interested in more global foods, and, and particularly European and, and French foods. Um, and, and so, beer follows suit, just in terms of a, of a revolution in, in food more generally. Now, the craft beer revolution begins in San Francisco and in Northern California, and expands from there. And Portland doesn't have their first um, successful craft brewery in, until really the um, mid 1980s, the first the first lasting brewery is Bridgeport Brewing, um, uh, which was founded by a wine a winemaking fam- family, the Ponzies, and then the first brewer was a guy named Carl um, Carl Okerd, uh, 
who has had a tremendous career. He was the first head brewer at Bridgeport Brewery, and he just retired, I saw, uh, in the last couple of weeks. Uh, he was leading a Deschutes Brewery in Bend up until the, the recent past. So, um, so anyway, you know, uh, there's a lot of lore behind the, st- behind the rise of craft beer in, in Portland and, and Seattle and other places. Uh, but, but these craft, these bearded guys in front of vats, they, they work together to uh, acquire malt and hops. And, um, so first it's, uh, Bridgeport and then, uh, Widmer brothers and, uh, rogue brewery, which, um, eventually ends up in Newport, Oregon, um, and McMinimins and, and, and then Deschutes. And so the rest is kind of history. There was a, there was a, a, a niche that these brewers served. Um, and today, as you know, Portland has um, more breweries per capita than anywhere else on the world and is lovingly called Beervana. True. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> Great place to live if you like beer. That's, that's for certain. That's right. Um, you know, it's funny because whenever I go home uh, to Portland – People want to. Uh, they ask me, "Oh, what's what's hot? What's new in the Portland beer scene?" I haven't been able to keep track of it for, you know, a long time now. It's, everything's happening so quickly, and in Eugene too. You know, everything's just going nuts. But it's great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems. I, I talk about Eugene. I, I did my uh, doctorate at the University of Oregon, um, and we had a, a little. Uh, a little pub right across the street from the history department. So of course, Friday afternoons, you know, the, the history students are down there getting pints. Um, That's great. And it kind of actually burned me out on IPA particularly. Uh, mm-hmm. And the reason I, I became, I mean, I had so much of it that the reason I kind of got burned out of it because it was so hoppy. I mean, there were so many hops yep. to it. Have we gone too far in, I mean, I mean, has, our, <laughs> has the pendulum swung so far in favor of hops that, that there's going to be a counter reaction? How do you see that? Uh, I mean, I, I share similar, uh, I have similar thoughts as you is that um, I kind of got burned out of IPAs because, you know, part of my research was traveling around the country and traveling to England and back and, and drinking beer with, with brewers and hop growers. So, I've had a lot of hoppy beer. <laughs> uh, I, the tr- in the 80s and particularly in the 90s when Bridgeport released its IPA, that became an iconic IPA. It kind of changed the scene in the 90s. And uh, Fred Eckert, a famous beer writer, said um, – or maybe it was John Foyston uh, who wrote for the Oregonian – said that the West Coast style is basically just – add more hops and that's what became the west coast style of of beer uh is 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 that trend over i don't think it's over i think it's uh, everybody has their own tastes the great thing about portland and the larger craft beer um, revolution as it continues today is there's so many varieties of beer you know um the one of the founders of um what was it uh, one of the founders of Portland Brewing, uh, a guy named Art Lawrence, he he developed uh, Cascade Brewery, and they only serve sour beers. I don't know if you've been to Cascade Brewery in near southeast Portland, but they only serve sour beers. So so you can go to a pub, a brew pub now, and you can't even get an IPA. Is what I'm trying to say. There's so many varieties, and like these days, I just like a good craft lager. Well, I live in New Mexico now too, so it's hotter here, and and, and you like a little bit lighter of a beer, but um. People still love their IPAs, but there's there's more for everybody now, more of diversity. Yeah, yeah, and that's just so fascinating about the about the beer, uh, the whole beer world. Um, I, I don't know if you're when I, when I picked up this book, um, one of the first uh, things I did was I messaged a friend of mine in England who's known as a kind of a beer aficionado. He's always on the, the there's the social media Untapped. Perhaps you've uh-huh. heard of it, where it's sure. like. You, you just kind of, you know, go around and check in. It's like, oh, I'm drinking, you know, a Bridgeport IPA or I'm drinking this or that or whatever. So, uh-huh. I, you know, I sent him a photo of of the cover of the book and I'm like, dude, you have to read this. You know, this is <laughs> this is totally it, it seems like it's that kind of book where it's like, I mean, it's an, it's hardcore environmental history. But it's like this book, I think, could interest people who've never picked up an environmental history book in their lives. Yeah, that's how I wanted to write it. You know, you have the hook of 
of, of beer and hops. But really, I, I don't like to say this, but I my goal is to trick people to think more broadly about social and environmental history through the story of hops and beer, right? Um, you get the story of, of the evolution of plants at, at the beginning of the book, and, and you end up with how um, women are – uh, starting to play more prominent roles in in the brewing industry in the 21st century. So, haha! I trick I trick everybody with the story of hops and beer, and, and then there's all this other stuff about diversity and, and labor and stuff. I think it worked out. <laughs> I, I think so. I mean, it was really fascinating, and you know, some environmental histories get kind of dry, especially when you do get into you know the evolution and there's you know that kind of thing. But but this was never that way. This was this was always really very interesting and, and topical. Uh, what, uh, what kind of sources did you use to, uh, how did you, you, aside from drinking beer with various European, uh, people, which sounds like a great way to do some research, uh, I'm just curious what kind of sources you use. So that's an interesting, uh, part of this project that, you know, it's been basically a decade long project now. Um, when I first started there, there was no, there was no archive for hop farmers or or hop growing and so i started with the basic resources like the agricultural census and newspapers but then i had to cobble together kind of an archive from across the pacific northwest and i visited uh, over a dozen um, well i visited you know u of o and oregon state and university of washington and, and and to see what the university archives had but but ultimately uh, I had to go to small historical societies like the Lane County Historical Society, uh, which is where Eugene is, and the Benton County Historical Society, Washington County Historical Society, um, Marion County Historical Society, and I. And these small little archives, they they built the story little by little, right? And 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 people had photographs, and there was labor contracts. There was um, every little. Um, visit every visit to one of these little historical societies paid dividends and then what really changed the game is that i got in contact with an organization called the oregon hop commission and the administrator there a woman by the name of michelle palacios she invited me into the world of uh, oregon hop farming and, and pacific northwest hop farming and i started to attend meetings and they you know Part what I realized about doing a project like this that that leads to the present to conversations in the present day is that it's really important to develop relationships. So I developed relationships with the Oregon Hop Commission uh, and the various um, hop uh, farming families, and they started. I started to do oral histories with them. They started to share collections with me. They started inviting me to you know, family events. One of the, um, I can't remember if she's still head of the Oregon Hop Commission, but Gail Goshi is uh, a third generation hop farmer outside of um, uh, Salem uh, or Silverton rather. Uh, and and so th the research was not straightforward. I had to go, I had to cobble it all together. Right. And then, you know, I finished the dissertation. I said, Oh, I need to, um, I need to go to England and figure out the transnational origins of this story. And so it wasn't just, I just didn't go to the Huntington and sit down and, and do research. I, I had to develop relationships with families because for the most part, Oregon hop farmers and Pacific Northwest hop farmers are third, fourth, and fifth generation. So they have that institutional knowledge as part of their family. Now, the end of the story uh, is interesting. After I spent several years cobbling all these uh, archives together, um, a, libra a librarian archivist at Oregon State University named Tia Edmondson Morton uh, stopped me after a talk I gave uh, at McMinimins in Portland. And she said, hi, you know, this is really interesting. I'd like to start something called the Oregon Hops uh, and Brewing Archive. I said, that would be wonderful. Why didn't you tell me five years ago? <laughs> so, so, uh, so I worked with Tia for a few years. Uh, um, kind of as a historical advisor, introducing her to people, to hop farmers and, and Al Honnold at Oregon State. And she's just done this tremendous job. Now there is literally a, a, an archive for Pacific Northwest 
hops and brewing history. It's the first of its kind in, in, in its nation. So in my story, it's disappointing. It came after I had done all the research, but it's a great, it's a great resource for those that are picking up where I've left off in the story. Hmm. Oh, that's really interesting. Kind of, yeah, leaving, leaving something for the future. Very cool. So what, uh, what else do you want people to know about this book? Uh, anything, <laughs> anything really, really surprise you or kind of, kind of come out of your, your research that, I mean, obviously the, the story about prohibition had, had certain surprises, but, uh, if there was anything else that was just really amazing to you or, or, or noteworthy in your, your, your process of research. You know, there's all kinds of stuff. Um, for example, back in the late 19th century, when you have, um, I, I said two of my main characters were a guy named Meeker and a guy named Horst. And they, if you look through their records and their correspondence, they were, um, they were really cutthroat about the way they did business. Uh, for example, they would um, monitor, uh, they would send their sons and daughters to go scout out farms and, and try to undercut uh, in terms of how much they're going to pay per pound for hops. So it's really, it, uh, in this, in this story, which seems like a small story, especially crops, there was a lot of, um, cutthroat business, just like anywhere else. Um, a lot of, a lot of, uh, the story of Hoptopia is also the story of, of loss for a lot of people too, because a lot of people invested a lot of money in hops in the late 19th and first half of the 20th century. But then maybe um, they planned it during a down year or when the global, global marketplace had um, didn't have need for their hops. And so it was a big financial gamble too. But these stories give us insight into the larger rural and agricultural history of the Pacific Coast during this time period. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. Well, uh, what uh, we're kind of coming toward the end. What are you working on next? I'm curious to, to hear what your next project is. Sure. Um, a project when I, I, uh, I started at New Mexico State University in August of 2012, and a new book project almost fell in my lap, which is um, – there's this character named Fabian Garcia, and he's known for um, hybridizing the, the chili pepper that made New Mexico chili famous, essentially. Hmm. Um, and this happened in, in, the first, uh, in the first two decades of the 20th century. So, I had, so in terms of the historiography, I'd already mastered like agricultural environment during these time periods and, and the global nature of hmm. – of, of these stories, but nobody had written uh, a biography or uh, there's very there's only a few articles and book chapters uh, on this guy, Fabian Garcia, but he revolutionized agriculture across the borderlands, not just Chile, but cotton, pecans, onions, um, scores of different crops. And, and nobody knows his story. We know the stories of people like Luther Burbank in California who, who became famous for the russet Burbank potato and, and all kinds of other crops. We know the story of uh, George Washington Carver, who, who traveled around the South and, and Midwest, uh, Iowa. You know, he, he's, the, he's the peanut farmer and came up with all kinds of uh, ideas, uh, uses of peanuts and such, but also did other horticultural work. We know the story of Liberty Hyde Bailey at uh, Cornell, who was the center of, uh, you're probably familiar with the country life movement in the early 20th century. Um, people wanted to get back to the land and, and think about what it meant to be a farmer and stuff during a period of industrialization. But nobody has written about Fabian Garcia, and he is the borderlands horticulturalist that we need to learn about. He, uh, he was an orphan that was born in Chihuahua, Mexico, the city of Chihuahua and the state of Chihuahua. He ends up in New Mexico with his adopted grandmother um, in the 1870s or so. He's one of the first graduates of New Mexico State University at that time called New Mexico College of Agricultural uh, and Mechanical Arts. And he gives his career to improving the agricultural situation of New Mexico and, and it trickles across the borderlands and he becomes a global expert. But nobody knows about this guy. So, hmm. so we have his archives here at the university, uh, along with several other archives, including the family he was adopted into when he arrived to um, uh, Mesilla, New Mexico. And so the book I'm writing is called um, Fabian Garcia and the Chili Pepper Connection. Uh, 
and the chili pepper connection is is how his success was uh, dependent. Uh, his success in Chile was replicated many other times, but it was he was successful because he was a product of the border. He spoke Spanish. He was um, familiar with lo- local farmers that on both sides of the border. But also he, he studied with Liberty Hyde Bailey at Cornell. And so it just demonstrates that um, the foods we eat and the clothes we wear, cotton clothes, they're, they're products of these environmental and knowledge exchanges um, in places we, we might not think about. And so that's what the, that's what Fabian Garcia and the Chili Pepper Connection, um, you know, there's a lot of overlap with Hot Topia in some ways in trying to tell these, these um, agricultural stories that's really interesting, and uh, it sounds like that book is gonna is gonna also be uh, of interest to me because I, I love chili, you know, <laughs> hot hot foods and spice. I lived in New Mexico too, so um, that sounds like there is going to be a lot of overlap there. So very cool. Yeah, from hops to chili. Yeah, <laughs> they go well together. <laughs> yeah. Your uh, your advisor was Marsha, right, Marsha Weisiger? Uh She was not my primary advisor, but I did work with her. Yes. Yeah, she she just calls me the hops and chili guy. <laughs> what <laughs> what are you like, <laughs> Oh, that's great. Well, Peter, thank you so much for uh, for being with us. Really interesting interview and uh, great book. So, uh, thanks so much, Sean. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Great. Okay. Well, we will uh, we will not take uh, more of your time, but definitely um, everyone should check out Hoptopia. It's a really really interesting book. So thanks, Peter. Thanks again. Okay. So big thanks to Peter Cup, associate professor at New Mexico State University for talking to us about Hoptopia, a world of agriculture and beer in Oregon's Willamette Valley. New in paperback from University of California Press, really great book. And we want to thank him for joining us. My name is Sean Munger. Remember, I have uh, my own podcast uh, and I also have a couple of other interviews here on New Books Network. So uh, thanks for joining us and we'll see you again soon.